This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell for the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Kathy Kelly, welcome to Better Reading. Hello. Hello, Cheryl. How are you? I, do you know, this is a dream come true for me, Kathy. I feel that I've known you for so long and we've never met, which I don't know why. No, um, me neither. Very yeah, weird. Very weird. But here we are over Zoom and you're in Dublin and I'm in Sydney and we finally met virtually. I have been a big fan of yours over the years. Thank you. Thank you. I've been in this industry more than I'd like to remember. But do you know, I started on the shop floor. And do you know before the genre YA came into play? Yeah. There was I, I no do. genre of, of YA, was there? Yeah. There was nothing when I was when I was growing up. I'm 54, so and I've so I've been in this business longer than I care to remember. There was nothing. There was there was Judy Bloom. Yeah. That was it. And and but, if you didn't understand the Americanisms, you were lost. Totally. That's right. So as a bookseller on the shop floor, when people would come to me when they'd finished in the kids section and wanting to transition to adults, I would often pick up your books and recommend Aww. those. Yeah. Because, I mean, you know, there there was other authors were like Tom Clancy and, you know, that kind of um, a crossover genre that's commercial fiction but has a relevance, I think, for young and old. Oh, that's so lovely. Thank you. I love write, writing young people. I, I always yeah. wrote young people. I wrote people of all ages, even when, like, before I had kids. Although I had, I started with dogs. I always say that my my first dog, Tamsin, taught me how to be a mom. So I'm a big dog fan. And uh, and then I, I eventually moved on to, to children and dogs. And so now I've uh, twin boys who are nearly 18, Dylan and Murray. And, you know, I, I have great fun when I, when I do come to Australia because I can get stuff from Murray that has his name on it because there's nothing in Ireland with, that says Murray. And, uh, and I've got three Jack Russells and they're called um, Dinky, Scamp and, wait for it, Licky. <laughs> because when we picked her up, right, um, one of one of the boys sat in the back of the car with her, and she kept licking him, and he said, "I think we should call her Licky." And I was like, "Okay, whatever." Perfect. Perfect. Uh, well, my dog's called John Brown, and. <laughs> It's cute. It's after um, a picture book called John Brown Rose and the Midnight Cat by Jenny Wagner. And the dog in that picture book is a huge English sheepdog, of which mine is, and his tiny is only four kilos, but he has the heart of John Brown. I love him. <laughs> now, let me introduce you because there might be a few people on this planet that don't know who you are. Kathy no. Kelly <laughs> is an Irish or well, former journalist and a writer of women's fiction. She has gained international recognition with her popular fiction novels, which are published globally and in many languages. Now, can I, is this your 19th novel? Did I get that right? Because I had to count. It is up. my 21st novel. Oh, I know. I can't count. No, no, no. Listen, I can't count either. Although I'm working on another one at the moment, and I'm cunningly calling it Novel Twenty Two. Uh, yeah, 
because I, I run out of names. Well, this book, uh, she has a new book out and it's called Other Women. And we're going to talk about that and many other things. I want to know all about you because as I said, I know very little. So tell me where you grew up and how the career to coming to writing, how did that come? Well, I, I loved reading. I mean, when I was a kid, I was born in Belfast and in Northern Ireland, but only because my mom and dad were were working there. Both my parents were were Southern Irish and my mom was from the West and she's still with us. And my dad, who is no longer with us, was from Dublin. And we were a very booky family. I mean, I was a member of three libraries. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And that created a big problem with bringing the books back on time. And um, I just loved books. It was, I, I lived in my head, I think, but I didn't know you could do it as a job. Yeah. So when I left school, I did journalism college and um, I would say I have a certificate in journalism. I don't have a degree in, in anything. So um, and I, I became a, a tabloid journalist and it was I mean, it was it was fascinating because the, the newspaper I worked for, we did a lot of hard stories about poverty, social issues. And I was very interested in stories about people with problems um you know, the lower socioeconomic end of the world. That, that That's what interested me, human beings, human stories. So I wasn't any good as a news reporter, and you know. So I did that for a long time. And I used to think, oh, I'd love to write a book just for the sake of, of saying I'd written a book. Can I just go back to journalism and the fact that you like human stories? I feel sometimes now when I'm reading journalism, particularly long-form journalism, is those stories that grab me are those that have a human interest where the journalist sees the person that they're writing about? I agree with you completely. That works so much better. And when I went into journalism, which was 34 years ago, um, it was, you know, tabloid, very male-dominated, you know, uh, short, sharp, shock sort of stuff. At the time, there was a lot of heroin in Dublin. We were doing stories like that, a lot of poverty. This was long before the the so-called Celtic Tiger made us a reasonably wealthy country. So we were writing those sort of stories and I wasn't very good at that. I was interested in, I'm sort of empathic and I like to talk to people and understand them. And I think that I actually do, I I work for UNICEF now as well. I'm a UNICEF Ireland ambassador and I, I travel to different places and I write stories where I can get to, to talk about how people's lives are being lived. It's a similar sort of thing. Talk to me a little bit about being in a totally male-dominated environment because my idea <laughs> of tabloid journalism back then is you see, you know, an old guy really scruffy with a notepad in his, you know, and usually maybe he'd had a few drinks the night before. That's my idea of tabloid journalism 20 years ago, yeah. 30 years ago. How did you fit into that? It was not spectacularly well, it has to be said. I mean, I had, yeah, um, I, I was very young and naive. And uh, I mean, really, I always say I'm one of those, you know, people who was sort of clever and spectacularly stupid simultaneously. So, uh, yeah, I was always getting into trouble. But yeah, it was very male dominated, very macho. You know, the news was everything. And it was hard to get ahead as a as a woman, no doubt about that. Um, I used to, I, I keep thinking, I, I've never, ever learned how to ask for a raise. Uh, I remember trying to ask for a raise once and, and doing it badly. And then I tried to see, could I be features editor? We didn't have a features department. And I was basically sort of thrown out of the office, sort of like, go on. It was, very, it was a pretty 
pretty sexist. There were no women. No, sexist is the wrong word. I worked with some beautiful, beautiful people, but there were other people who really, they were pretty chauvinistic. It was, mm. yeah, that was the, that would have been, I started in 1987 and it was a different world. It really was a different world then. Mm. And how long did you stick it out for? I stuck it out for 14 years and it was, wow. there were difficult times. i bought a house. I had a dog I had to take care of. You know, the mortgages were crazy. And I remember thinking, I'll take, get in ironing. You know, that's the only way I'll make a, make a living. And I just thought I was bad at my job. I often think that's a a very female thing to think you're bad at what you do Mm -hmm. and that you're going to be found out. And I think my problem was that I was trying to write news and I wasn't a news person. So eventually I got into the human interest stuff. Then I, I started to write a book and I thought, I'm just going to write the sort of thing I'd like to read. That was absolutely what I wanted to do. So what, just out of the blue, you decided you wanted to write a book? I mean, no, no this has been going on for years. I mean, my okay, mom. Tell me, go back to that. Years. I want to, because <laughs> you don't just wake up one morning and decide to write a book, right? No, you, no, no, you don't. You don't. I mean, I don't have a bucket list. One of the things I always wanted to do was, was be a writer because by then I'd interviewed writers and I could see you could be a writer, but I didn't have the confidence. I thought, I'm, you know, I didn't think I was a very good journalist. I thought I'd be a terrible writer. So when I was in college, my mom and I tried to write a Mills and Boone book together. This was like hilarious. I don't know how two people can write a book. You know, the way like the Nikki French couple can, are there's a man and wife and they write a book. Do not know how they don't kill each other. So I would go to college and she would write longhand, you know, little bits about this. We were writing about a heroine who who ran a hotel. Now, neither of us knew anything about running a hotel, you know, so this was obviously wildly clever. So I'd come home from college and we had an old golf ball typewriter. This is pre-computers to anyone listening. And you're going, what's pre-computers? So a golf ball typewriter had this little thing like a golf ball with all the letters on it. And the E was was a bit wonky. And which, as we know, is the most... There's unique. always a wonky letter on a golf ball typewriter. Always. It's always something. If you did a survey, I think everybody would well, we'd cover the alphabet with a wonky letter. Completely. And E was a bad one. And it was a secondhand one because we were broke. So, <laughs> um, so she'd have written, you know, the heroine walks into room. And then in brackets, she'd write, describe room. And I'd be going, ah, now here. Anyway, went nowhere. Actually, <laughs> hilariously, my father at the same time decided he'd write a Mills and Boone. Now, at least we'd read Mills and Boone. He hadn't even read a Mills and Boone. But anyway, you know, there's no accounting for taste. So that went nowhere. And then later on, my news editor heard that I wanted to write a book. He, you know, he used to tease me. I used to say I liked, you know, French novels because I loved the writer Colette and he used to get oh, a great... Yeah out of, you know, teasing me. And he heard somebody wanted what they would call clogs and shawl novels, you know, the sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So I tried my hand at that and I couldn't do it because I think you have to write what's in you. I mean, I literally, I, I spent ages researching and I'd say I wrote, you know, about four paragraphs. Couldn't do it. So I think I was about 26 and I said okay I got a second-hand computer everything as you see in the story is second-hand even the table I wrote it on was someone's kitchen table I used it as a dining room table and it was second-hand or as we say now vintage I know I love that vintage I do and, too yeah I know I, to me it'll always be second-hand yeah um, so I sat down and I started to write and I got 
published by an Irish publisher and it went from there. Um, hang on, hang on, hang on. So okay, you sat down and it's not that easy. So you sat down, you've gone really essentially from short form to long form. Yeah. Hugely difficult because tabloid is, someone will say, write 600 words. Yeah. And at the time could be, we'll say, you know, 150, 200,000 bigger novels were in then. They're not so much now, but then you could write a 200,000 word novel. So yeah, yeah. It, it was difficult. Yeah. And I loved it. After your first one, I've spoken to so many authors on this podcast and so many of them have, you know, many, many attempts. And I call that practice, right? So many of them, their first novel is not published. But for you, was it the first novel? It was the first novel. I think journalism helps because you do edit yourself all the time. I mean, I I mentor writers and I work with writers all the time. Um, when people send stuff to me, I always, I you know, I, I do will say a little edit on their first couple of chapters and I go, okay, you see what you have to do here? So I was very good at self-editing, you know, and I think that was a part of it. And also I think it was the time. I was, I was lucky. It was the time. My first book was published in 97. So the publisher got it in 1995. Now in Ireland at the time, Marion Keyes was just coming out, beautiful Marion, who's a dear, dear friend of mine. Um, and then there was Patricia Scanlon. And other than that, there was there was Maeve Binchy of the sort of the modern women writers. And that was it. We were it. So my first book was only published in Ireland and it did, you know, went to number one for eight weeks. And I was in a very Irish way. And any Irish listeners will, will, will understand this. You're sort of embarrassed about being in any way successful. So I would go into the canteen in the office and they'd say, is it still number one? And I'd go, yeah, yeah. So I just want to go back to that. So your first novel went on to become a bestseller. I mean, how rare is that? Oh, huge. I mean, I was so blessed. I mean, you know, the luck. And I do think a huge amount of it was timing, you know. Um, And it was a very strange time because my, my father had Alzheimer's and he oh, really was quite sick at that time. And then I ended up getting a malignant melanoma on my hip. So all this, and in fact, the, the malignant melanoma was nothing because my mom and I were trying to look after my father. So it was like the book was published, got the book, great book, yep, yeah, fabulous. But we were dealing with this man who had early onset dementia, who was really at that point quite bad because he died two years later two years after the book was published. So, you know, he was really in the later stages of it. How um, old was he? When he died, he was nearly 61. So we got it in his 50s. So um, and it was so young, very, very hard to have him diagnosed. And it, we went through an absolute nightmare. So all this was going on. So, you know, I had a job, I had a mortgage I was having trouble paying. I got no money with, with the book. You know, it was just a sign the contract. There you go, write the book, no money. Well, I take in ironing uh, and I'm trying to look after, you know, help look after my dad. So, you know, the thing is, you never start to, to get big headed. You never think, God damn it, I great. You just mm. get on with your life. You what know? happened to your um, cancer? How did you treat that? I had it removed surgically and it was fine. Um, oh, it was just fluke. I'm, I'm sort of blue, really. I'm one of those people who was a bit blue. I mean, I know that in Australia, you have a, you, you're, what is it? Slip, slap, slop campaign. Yes. I know. <laughs> We're getting there here, I think, eventually. But I've been, I've been wearing Factor 50 ever since, let's put it that way. Does so. the sun ever shine? Oh, God, 
it does now. You know, I mean, as they say, you know, four four seasons in one day. We had sun today. Ireland is is beautiful. But one of the reasons it is green is because we do get rain. But we we do get some marvellous, marvellous summers, but we do not get the exquisite weather that you get in Australia. Well, it's not exquisite at the moment, let me tell you that. I'm thinking that I would have been unpacking your books when did you say that book was first published? Well, it was published in Ireland in 97. Then a company bought me Headline Republic mm. and it was published in 1998. So mm. that's when that book would have been, mm. would have come out first around the world. Because I have a really distinct memory of it, the cover, firstly, because that's, you know, that's what grabs you instantly. We all know oh, that. Totally, yeah. totally. And when you're merchandising in a bookshop, I remember thinking it was unique. It was fresh. And it was young. Yeah. Remind me what it was about. I can't remember now. Oh, my God. It's funny because some books I can can remember really well. It was about these two friends. And, and of course, everyone always thinks your first book is autobiographical and it so wasn't because I was going, I'm a journalist. I know better than this. Um, But there was a newspaper in it and everyone in the office thought they were in it. And I kept saying, you're not in it. Will you stop? (laughs) Um, but there were two friends and one was a magazine journalist and she has this terrible boyfriend and she gets pregnant and he dumps her. And her best friend, and they shared a, a, a flat together, her best friend is married uh, to a deputy editor of a, of a newspaper. And she and she is actually twins, hilariously. I was writing about twins then. And she finds out he's having an affair. And it's about their their lives because they know each other and how they get through everything. And it was funny I mean I I like I joke about everything and and I always remember saying to people you know because people would say you know you're romantic and I go no I'm not romantic to anyone who hasn't read that book one of the women does not end up with a man it's about you love yourself first honey and no person fixes you you fix yourself a lot can happen in the next three years like a chatbot maybe your new best friend but what won't change needing health insurance United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Do you know, I absolutely agree with you that they're not autobiographical fiction, isn't, but there is so much of who you are in storytelling. Totally. I, you know, what? I, I always feel I, can t- I know what a person is like by reading their book. You can tell if they're warm or cold or you get so many vibes from them, the way they describe things. It's just unbelievable. I was just going to say, do you know Monica McInerney? 
Do you know? I do. She is a completely gorgeous woman. Is she living in Australia now? At the moment, because she came here and got stuck with COVID and she's <gasps> she's living with her mother. But I remember I read her books over the years and I only met her maybe five or six years ago. And I remember thinking, like you actually, like this conversation with you, I remember thinking, oh my God, you are exactly what I imagined you to be. Because so she warm. is that, isn't she? Is that. Actually, I have her new book, the name of which completely escapes me, but it's a very simple cover. Yes. It's out in hardback here. And I have that upstairs in my to-be-read pile, my to-be-read pile. I know what it's called. It's called, I just remembered. I haven't even had to look it up. It's called The Godmother. Yes, 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 yes. yes. Brilliant, brilliant. Yes. She yes. is so fabulous. You see, the, the cover and the title, I mean, they they grab you, don't they? Mm. You just go, oh. But you are that for me. As we're speaking now, you are that for me. And you've got that funk that I recognised in the first book. Um, I, I think I embarrass my children. I mean, I talk to everyone. I I live where I live in, in, in Wicklow is I live in a little village where you can be in the city centre, depending on, you know, how fast you drive uh, in 40 minutes. So it's really <laughs> close to, to, to Dublin. But, you know, I've got sheep or deer and all sorts of things down, not obviously in my back garden, but in the field behind me. So it's, it's brilliant. I um, want to talk about growing up with your writing. Oh, gosh, that's a good because one. You do, is it, you, it is. It is a good one, isn't it? Because particularly for you, because you, when you first wrote that first one, where well, you weren't married, you didn't have children, you yeah. know, it's a totally different perspective. So tell me how growing up has changed your writing. Oh, gosh. I mean, so massively. I remember when I used to write about children and I always loved children and I wanted children and I had nieces and I, I'm terribly drawn to children. But when you, the difference between writing about children and having children, you sort of go, ah, now, right, I get it. Um, and and so one of the funniest things, there's a really cute little, little. Um, actually, no, it was in the last book that was really cute, cute the family gift was an adorable, adorable little child. So that's changed. And you, you, you learn about yourself and the things that interest you move and change and evolve. Um, and, and you get more wisdom. That said, I, I do think somebody once said to me, you're a very old soul. And um, I think I possibly, and I think I was born old. Mm. You know, I was one of those people at school. They said I was, I was sensible. Mm. I longed to be one of the exciting wild people, but no, I was sensible. And I have noticed this um, with your writing too. My mother, and she's got dementia now, but yeah, it's it's tough gig, as you know. But she used to always say that life gets sadder as you get older. And she wasn't a negative person or a sad person or anything like that. But I often wondered what she meant by that, right? You don't actually know until you start getting older because life experience, you know, you lose people, you lose your father, you lose friends. There is that. There's the, you know, the the difficulty of just living, you know, paying a mortgage, you know, earning enough money, yeah. all of that. And I always used to think, I don't know what that means, but I absolutely know what that means. And I see it in the writing of authors as well. It's not that their writing style changes so much, but it's the wisdom of where they come from has changed. I think you are 150% right. I mean, you do so many things seem to have happened in my life in the last 20 years I've been writing and it changes you. And I think little things don't matter so much. You know, the, you know, the silly little things, that just doesn't bother me. You know, it's about surviving, getting through, 
life, trying to be happy, being with the people you love, taking care of the people you love, all those sort of things. They're the things that matter. And you're aware of losing people. My very best friend was a lovely lady called Emma Hannigan, who was published in, and she was published in Australia too. She's, uh, I met her, she had the BRCA1 breast cancer gene breast and ovarian cancer gene, and she was quarter Jewish, and it's the Ashkenazi Jewish gene. So she had surgery to remove her breasts and her ovaries, but she still got cancer. So she basically lived with cancer and kept coming back over 11 years. And she just kept fighting it. She used to say, you know, Emma, you know, four, cancer, zero. And um, she died three years ago uh, this month. And, you know, she, she, she hated the word fight, but because the, the implication is that, if, you know, if you die, that you haven't fought enough. And I mean, cancer doesn't really work that way. But she managed to survive until her children were in their late teens. But, um, you know, you lose beautiful people like that and life is finite, you know. It's, and that comes into your writing, doesn't it? It's a bit it of a background, a bit of a ripple where it is, isn't it? No, it is a bit of a ripple. And also, as you get older, I find personally, I've been more able to let myself go in in other ways. I mean, it was interesting when you were talking about that Jenny Wagner book and, and John Brown and will say, you know, you said it was in a book about depression. I mean, I've gone through depression in my life. I've gone through anxiety. They weren't things that I talked about. My first job, I went through, you know, a sexual assault. Oh, you know, sorry to hear that. Things. Yeah. When I've, I've talked about it here, so it's it's sort of not new and I'm getting much better at talking about it. Um, but, you know, you can talk about all these things because in the beginning I was like, oh, no, I'm not going to talk about those things now, you know, to, to keep it all inside. Mm. Then you get older and you think, no, it helps people to talk about it. Mm. Has the, I don't want to go down this path, but I will ask you quickly, has the Me Too movement helped you with that? Has the recognition of women globally talking about it helped you? Helped me hugely. That was it was during the Me Too movement that I sort of came out and and spoke about it just a little bit. I didn't really go into that many details because, but yeah, it it and it triggered me so much. I think anyone who's been involved in anything like that is just so triggered by the Me Too movement. I remember watching the, the Harvey Weinstein thing with my husband, and I was like, I'm not going to look at this. And he had it on, and I went in the room and I started watching it, and I was, I I, I just couldn't even sleep that night. It, just so intense and you know it's a big wake-up call for the world to understand that about power and inequality and consent mm. you know and it's we're it's going so through right. that at this very moment in Australia I don't know if you've read about that but a young woman a young liberal staffer was raped in the workplace right next door to the prime minister's office and that's a big issue for us at the moment and this is very recent but you see this is it, it goes on mm. everywhere mm. and there is this you know, belief that, oh, everything's different now. No, it's not. I'm the slightest bit different. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't have gone forward with what happened to me because I didn't think anyone would believe me. I knew exactly what, you know, what happened to someone who went forward and this person was in a senior position to me, mm-hmm. you know. So mm-hmm. it, it, it's actually frightening. And I think that's something, the work I do with UNICEF, I'm, you know, heavily involved in campaigns, I mean, a lot of UNICEF's work is to do with women and children, but, you know, empowering women and women in deep, deep poverty and children in poverty are absolutely at risk of all sorts of sexual abuse and sexual exploitation and and slavery. I wanted 
talk about your twins. So they're 18. Uh, do they read your books? No, no. Actually, it's sort of funny um, because part of me keeps thinking, one day they're going to have to read it. And Because sometimes they say lovely things like, you're a great writer, mom. And I'm thinking, you don't know. You don't know. You don't have a clue. But I, I could be dreadful. You might hate all my stuff. Oh, my God. It'd be embarrassing. It's sort of like, you know, the first time you write anything to do with sex and you think, my mother's going to read this. Oh, my God. But no, they, they, they haven't read them yet. And they both read incredibly widely but they, they haven't read me and I, I think I'd like to try and keep it that way for a while. I think they will at some point. Um, tell me just a little bit about your writing style like the craft like coming to work and approaching it as a job because I know a lot of authors struggle with that and I was talking to Isabella Allende the other day and she I just like to drop that in isn't she beautiful? That is oh god yeah. I know. I'm allowed We're to name drop sometimes. Yeah. Kathy Kelly, Isabella Ayanda. Anyway. Oh, no, no, not worthy. I am not worthy. <laughs> don't even put it in the same sentence. Oh, I don't know about that. But she said her approach to writing has never changed as a career. She starts January the 8th. She starts at 9 o'clock and finishes and she's disciplined and she goes up, I think her writing office, she called it, was upstairs and she writes, you know, for the day. And I thought, wow, that is tremendous discipline. You know, whether she's writing a book or not, she's always working. What's your approach? Well, I think whether you're writing or not, you are always working because you're thinking about the book. I mean, it's in your head. You know, you're in the yeah. shower and this is brilliant. And, you know, you're driving the car. This would be marvellous. And then you sit down at the computer and you go, you know, what is a word? I can't spell anymore. Um, <laughs> yeah, I am disciplined. I mean, for a long time I was writing a book a year and you have to be disciplined. But uh, I don't know, as I get older, I, I think I get, well, I get more untidy. My general untidiness is going against me. And my office is is actually quite cold and I'm a really cold person. So I'm casting around the house going, I'm going to put a table somewhere else and sit there and do that, do the writing there with the dogs. And all the dogs have to sit beside me. But I'm, I am, I bring the kids to school. When we're actually, well, we're in lockdown, but the, my sons have gone back to school the last two weeks um, because they're in the sort of the penultimate year in school. But up to then, they we were in lockdown and we were at home. But I would bring them to school, come home, work. That's the way I did it every day. And um, I didn't really even eat lunch, which was very bad. In the last two years, I know I sort of stop and I eat lunch, which is, I feel an improvement in the schedule. <laughs> Absolutely, because you really need fuel to keep going. Um, and so you, you work in school hours and you finish up at that time, do you? Do you finish up at a time and then that's it, you're done? Yeah, pretty much. Unless I'm at the end of a book when I go into the hysterical panic mode that involves, you know, saying to everyone good night and, and sitting here and then taking, you know, orange vitamin E drinks. You know, those are those those little tablets that have caffeine in them. And, mm, you know, and that fears. Yes, and, and you, then you go to bed later and you wonder why you can't sleep. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, all right, last question because I know we've got to go. But um, I was speaking to Lee Child a few years ago now. He was actually in Sydney. Don't you love him? You know what he does? Reacher. I mean, really, wouldn't you just run Great off character. Yeah. yeah, great yeah. character. Somebody I'd been in love with for some time. But oh, a lot of us out there. Yeah, we're, we're, we should have a fight over him. Yeah, that's right. Have a fight over a fictional character. Um, but he told me, and I don't know how many books he's written, I can't remember now, but it's a lot, like it's over 20 yeah. for sure. And he said every time he sits down to start a new book, it's as hard as the first. Totally, 100%. I think you're always anxious about it. In my experience, I always think, oh gosh, I, I'm not good enough. And that was a fluke. And the people that liked it, well, they were, you know, they needs their heads examined and I'm an idiot. 
And I always feel that every single time. And when I send it off, I'm dying for the person, the editor to read it. So that, you know, they say, was it dreadful? Like genuinely, the, 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 the fear is enormous. Mm. You know, and I love reading about, or, you know, other, I go on Pinterest and I look at writer quotes. And when they say things like, you know, you're terrified, but you do it anyway. And I go, oh, goody, goody, they're terrified too. Actually, Margaret Atwood, not that I know her, but um, she was talking about there's two Margaret's. There's, you know, Maggie who does, you know, that walks the dogs and brings in the firewood. And then there's Margaret who sits down to work and Maggie has to boss uh, Margaret around and tell her to work. And I was going, oh, I love the sound of that. Because sometimes when you're starting a book, you're, you would do anything. You go, I will lick the kitchen floor clean rather than start a new book. And that's, I have three dogs. <laughs> Please don't do that. Just, just, go, just write. All right, we've got to let you go. Honestly, I have loved this. Uh, you're everything I imagined you to be, actually. <laughs> a bit, a bit, uh, hey, a bit funky. Yeah, a bit funky. I thought that was going to be that, though. <laughs> I know. Thank you. Thank you. It's Kathy Kelly. It's a pleasure. And, and, and when I am visiting and travelling and, and the boys have done their exams and I am free to go off and do things and I will be back. Will you? Will you come back? You've got to come to my place for dinner one night. Oh, my God. And, and meet your beautiful dog. Oh, yeah, meet my beautiful dog. dog. Um, I, I'll just name drop one last time before we go. Nigella Lawson came to my place. <gasps> for oh, I love her. Oh, my so God. So you, you'll be in good company. Oh, I love Nigella. There's something <laughs> very vulnerable about her, isn't she? There's such beauty Gorgeous. In her. I just want to hug her and I, I mm. wish I could cook too, but yeah. <laughs> That's all right. You don't need to cook. I'll do the cooking. <laughs> I'll do the cooking. Okay. And kisses to beautiful puppy. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. 
Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.